Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, ahoy, welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Lucy Hooft. She's worked all around the world in geopolitics for the Foreign Office and she's now used that experience for a novel that's called The King's Pawn. We talk about how NaNoWriMo helped her write but also skewed the numbers a bit. Also why she likes writing scenes with three purposes and why writing short flash fiction really helps with the novels. I find it a really really nice relief from writing a novel which is of course such a huge um undertaking that takes months and you can't you can't even reread your own work in in you know just a few hours it's just such a big thing whereas a piece of flash fiction you can bash it out in a few minutes you can revise it in a few minutes or weeks or months you know depending on your style um but it's a really kind of concentrated little bite of creativity as opposed to a a large meal of a novel there is more with lucy hooft in this week's writers routine yes welcome along to the show this is writers routine thank you so much for being there my name's dan simpson it's where we take a look through an author's working day um all forms of authors that's what i really like about doing the show i get to have conversations with people from all around the world at all different stages of their publishing career some have published so many they're all bestsellers and they crack out as many as they can uh, others have sat there for a little bit of time just waiting for that perfect first book and this week we're chatting to a brilliant debut author lucy hooft um she worked for the foreign office and for the UK Department of International Development she's had quite an incredible career travelling all around the world she then worked for Queen Rania of Jordan and spent time in the jungle she now lives in Namibia so she's done a lot for loads of different people quite high up all around the world i do ask the spy question of course and she's now taken that experience and knowledge and written a novel it's called the king's pawn it's all about sarah black a young female spy and a huge international conspiracy with potentially enormous ramifications. It's set in Tbilisi, Baku and all around the South Caucasus region. We talk about why it was inspired by a real life event that no one has heard of. Also, why NaNoWriMo, the National November Writing Month, really helped her with this but also slightly skewed the numbers. Uh, we chat about how 
because this is the first Sarah Black novel, uh, Lucy's already planned five, and she's written quite a few of those. She's published this one, and we chat about dedicating time and energy into writing something that might never be published and planning loads more. Did she ever feel guilty about about doing this when there's so much else to do and she's not necessarily making money from it? You can also hear how much she thought of the genre and why it all started with writing games to fend off new baby brain. There's a lot on the way, so let's crack on with Lucy Hooft. We start, as we always do, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. So the place where I sit around to write is generally a bit of a mess. Um, my desk is full of papers and envelopes and things I was supposed to do something with and children's drawings and um, other bits of rubbish. Um, the Away from the desk, I have beautiful views out the window. I can see down over the town of Luderitz. I can see out um, to the sea. I can. It's very, very calm and blue today, which is quite unusual for this time of year for it to be so calm it's normally wild and windy um and uh what else can i see i have on my desk uh, behind all the rubbish um i have a couple of framed um doodles which are some of my prized most prized possessions um and they are doodles by chris riddell who um was he's a children's illustrator and author Um, And they came from a talk that I was part of the Jericho Writers Festival that I attended um, that was Neil Gaiman and Chris Riddell in conversation. And Neil Gaiman was sort of in full storytelling mode. He's one of the world's best storytellers and raconteurs. And as he was telling his stories, Chris Riddell was doodling and making live um, illustrations of the stories. Um, And I was lucky enough to win a couple of these. And one of them, um, they talk about the bad advice that these two were given when they were children. Um, And Chris Riddell was told to stop doodling. And Neil Gaiman was told to keep his head down and stop um, talking so much. And so I've got... um, I've got illustrations of this bad advice given to people to try and thwart their creativity as an inspiration for why, um, yeah, why you shouldn't always do what you're told. So you're living with with your family over in Namibia. Um, the, the space where you write, is it, is it completely yours? Is this your office, your desk space, or, or, or does it, yeah, by nature of... No, unfortunately not. It, it is the, it's sort of in the living room and it's kind of the family computer. Well, it was my computer. It's become the family computer as the children have got older. Um, so I only really have time um, to write into myself while children are at school. Um, and that, um, that works. Um, it, it sort of falls to pieces when things change. So if there's a, a child home sick or we have guests, um, then suddenly there's people sat in my office all day long and it doesn't work so well. Um, but so long as the kids are at school, then it's it's my little realm for certain hours in the day. So you've got some form of chaos around you with the kids stuff. You've got your illustrations on the wall. You've got a nice view out the window. Is uh, what, What's practical around you? Is, is there anything to jog your mind as to what you're meant to be writing today? Um, so I will always have a notebook to hand. Um, I like to write most of my scenes, um, sort of longhand to begin with. I won't write out the whole scene, but I like to jot down maybe notes about where the scene is taking place. I might do a bit of research. Um, for example, if I wanted to write a scene in a bar in Istanbul, 
I'd get online, I'd have a look um, and try and pick up some details to bring it to life. I'd scribble those in my notebook. And then I would write the kind of main lines of this of the scene, you know, what's it about, what's its purpose, what are its three purposes if possible, what's its point of conflict and tension. And then I will sketch out the dialogue again by hand in the notebook. And those are sort of the bare bones that I then take to my computer and write up based on on that skeleton. You were quite specific there in the three purposes of, of, a, of a scene or a thing, if possible. Where, where does that particularity come from? Um, that is a brilliant piece of advice that I got from um, Anna Davis, who runs the Curtis Brown Creative Online Writing Courses. Um, and I did one of the three-month online courses with her um, about editing your novel. And she gave this piece of advice that every single scene, not just chapter, but scene, should have should serve three purposes. So um, whether that's to do with plot or character development or foreshadowing or tying up a loose end or putting in a red herring, uh, every scene has to be doing all of that work and all of that lifting. Otherwise, it's pointless or it's, it's not working hard enough, let's say. Um, so that was really, really helpful. It's helpful um, in editing to, you know, each scene you think, is this really... Does it justify its place? Um, or if not, can I combine it with some other things? But it's also helpful when you're thinking about writing the scene to make sure you do it right in the first place and don't need to come back in the edit and fix it. So I'm interested in how much of a conscious thought that is. I mean, I mean, you, you, you're publishing your first novel. I know that you've written shorter pieces of fiction before and just generally been writing. Uh, si- since learning that on the Curtis Brown course... How much is that in the forefront of your mind when you are writing something fresh? I, 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 I guess how naturally does it come now? Or are you still sitting there thinking, right, what are my three things? What purpose does this have? Um, I suppose I, yeah, I am thinking actively about it, but it is a much more natural part of the process. So um, my first book is well, it came out last week, actually. Um, and the second one is coming out in March next year. And the third one is mostly written. And the fourth one is um, needs to be started. Um, so with each of these of the books as I've gone, I feel like I've got a lot better at knowing what I'm doing. So book one took a really, really long time to write because I really had no clue what I was doing when I sat down to begin it. Um, and I just, you know, I had a character and I had an idea and oof, boom, off I went. And it was it was a mess. And so um, the effort and work required to bring that into the being in the shape that it needed to be in in the end um, has taught me an awful lot about how to make sure that I plan better in the first place um, so that I don't have to spend quite so much time fixing problems later on. So book two was a lot better planned and book three has become, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm fully kind of mechanized about it, but I've got a big master spreadsheet. I know exactly what all the main character arcs are. I know what the big points of tension and conflict are. I know more or less everything that's going to happen before I even start writing to make sure that it hits all the right notes. Now you've planned, as you said, you're writing your fourth book. I'm sure you've planned many more. It's very rare for an author to uh, knock it out of the park with their first book and then they can sit happy being an absolute debut success. What's it like for someone where you are who's just published their first novel thinking, 
I might not hit my stride. I might not get really good until another three or four books down the line. How do you view that long-term process? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it was where during the, the long road to publication, it was one of the one of the di- most difficult things because I've always envisaged this series as a five book series. And I was completely committed to writing it, whether or not they were ever going to get published, because I just really want to find out what happens in the end. And I want to read the last books. Um, but then the first one, it took a long time to get it good enough to get to the stage where it was ready to be published. And so throughout that time, I was then thinking, what you know, what a mess have I got myself into that my first book is not good enough to be published, but my second book follows on from the first and the third follows on from the second. And you know, have, I, have I got myself into this terrible rabbit hole? Um, but I think now that, you know, I was able to take a break from the first, go on to the second, finish it, revise it, edit it, um, come back to the first, start again, rewrite, revise. It's been really helpful to have all of these different things to work on um, in parallel almost, um, or at least in series, um, so that then when the first one was out, I, I'm not now stuck with the sort of, oh my goodness, what do I do next uh, moment that I think a lot of debut authors have, um, because the second one's already ready and I know exactly what comes next and I just feel sort of better prepared for it. Um, I mean, of course, there's the there's this, the fear that I'm sure strikes any author of you know when you put your first book out, how is it received? Because it's the very, very first time that you've ever um, made your writing available to readers, and and you just have to to hope that they like it and that the reviews are good and that it's encouragement enough to keep going. We get quite specific on the show. Um, people are very interested to know, like, what's on the desk. So, what are you writing on? It, so, it's the, it's it's the family computer. But what software do you use, and uh, what what font do you use, Lucy? <laughs> um, I've always heard this on the podcast, and I always think I can't even I don't even know what font I write in, which is which is strange. Um, I write on a on an iMac desktop computer uh, with a very large screen. Um, one of the other day jobs I do is video editing, so I need to have a very big screen. Um, I have always, up until now, written in pages, which is the sort of word processing software that comes with um, with a Mac, uh, which is sort of fine, but it's not terribly useful for um, uh, you know sending it back and forth for comments and revisions and stuff. So I have finally, just in the last month, bitten the bullet and paid the money to get the word for Mac um, subscription um i think i write either in Arial or times new roman because i'm not that um yeah i'm not that fast about about the font um i find it's quite useful when i'm when i'm revising and when i'm editing to uh to change the font to suddenly do something completely different because you it forces your eye to look at it differently and you pick up much more on typos or things that read weirdly because it suddenly looks different on the page. So it's a bit a bit difficult to, to give you a typical day because I don't really have any typical days. Um, I have three young children and a puppy and three other jobs and I'd, I'd love it if I could just sort of sit at my desk all day and write and think and write and think, but sadly that quite rarely happens. Um, but if I were to um, to talk you through, let's say, an ideal writing day when everything falls into place and it goes well, um, I uh, w- 
where after I get up, it's very much about kids and getting kids off to school and lunchboxes and breakfast and have you got your shoes and that sort of that sort of thing that I'm sure is familiar to many parents. Um, after they're dropped off at school, I take the dog uh, for a walk. We have um, where we live in Namibia has some absolutely extraordinary. Um, very wild, deserted beaches. Um, so I'm lucky enough to go and walk on a completely empty, wild stretch of coastline every morning with the dog. And that's a really, really great way to set me up for the day, whatever it is that I'm that I'm doing. It's a great um, space to be able to think, to plan ahead what I'm doing, um, perhaps to work through any problems or prepare for anything I need to do in the day. Um, when I get to my desk, my first half hour at the desk is generally completely useless time when I'm checking my email and looking at social media and checking the news and generally faffing about. And then after about half an hour, once I've had my cup of tea, um, I will settle in and get down to work. Um, as a lot of writers seem to um, tell you on this program, the mornings is is a much better time for me to write than the afternoons. It's when I'm more creative. It's when, obviously, it's when I have the time because uh, my children are at school. Um, so that is when I have my most productive hours and try and get the most done. Um, if I'm, if the kids are also busy in the afternoon, then I will um, try and squeeze in a bit after lunch um, and obviously depending on other work commitments. And then generally three o'clock when they're done, um, that's it for the day. Uh, I'm not really very good at writing in the evenings. I take my hat off to people who do full-time office jobs and manage to squeeze in writing a novel in the evenings. Um, I find my brain just sort of shuts down by that point of the day. Um, But I can do it when I absolutely have to. So if I have a deadline to hit or... Um, edits that need to be done um, and time is really short, then I I can squeeze out a couple of hours in the evening, but it's really not me at my best. If you're getting all your work done in the morning, um, because you know that, well, kids are going to come home and your energy will massively flag through the afternoon. How much pressure is there in in that period to, to get stuff done? How much does that thought that this is the time when you need to be writing ever get in the way of the actual writing? Um, I think it, I think it helps to focus the mind. Um, when I very first started writing The King's Pawn, I had a just two-year-old and a newborn. Um, and so my time was incredibly uh, precious. And for three hours in the morning, I had a babysitter who would take the children um, out and go and play with other children. And for those three hours were so immensely precious that the idea of wasting them doing anything other than writing always felt just just wrong. Um, and I, I think I probably used to do much more in those three hours than I would have done if I had six hours without the time pressure, um, you know, just because I was so conscious of the fact of what precious time this was. And is there an aim? Is there a goal for for those three hours somewhere you want to be either in the story or in your word count? Um, I find a thousand words a day is a very good ballpark. Um, Obviously, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes um, it's more. Um, But I find that's a good chunk of writing. It takes you far enough forward and it feels like you've done something. Um, I don't, yeah, I find it hard to do much more than that. I find I kind of start to flag or run out of steam, even if I do have more time. Um, the most or the, the bulk of the, um, second book was actually written in NaNoWriMo a few years ago. 
Um, and that, uh, you know, obviously you have to keep up on average. I think it's like 1,600 or so words a day, every day, including weekends for a month. Um, and that was really sort of out of my comfort zone. And I did it and it was brilliant. And it was a really, really great way of just pouring the story out. But I couldn't possibly have kept it up for longer than that month. I'm always interested by NaNoWriMo. I've kind of dabbled in it. Um, how much did that it kind of set you up for months that weren't November, say in the middle of May? Did it make it easier for you to just like cr- try and crack out a thousand fifteen hundred words that maybe you weren't suited to before you were forced to do that for 30 days um i don't yeah i don't think i was massively more productive afterwards um what it did make me realize was how much you can actually get done in small windows of time if you just really crack on and do it so in NaNoWriMo i used to do writing sprints um with sort of other people who were also doing it in brisbane where we were living at the time people i didn't even know and never met and had no real accountability but just somehow knowing that they were doing it at the same time that i was doing it made me feel like it was, you know, that I had to just get on. And so it, you'd set a timer for half an hour, you'd all go and then you'd write away and half an hour later, you'd just report in with how many words you'd written. And I was astounded by how much I could get done in half an hour compared to what I would normally achieve in half an hour of writing time. So I think that was very useful to realize that you can have these snatch moments and just bash things out. Um, like I said, I wouldn't be able to keep up that pace throughout um, throughout normal life. It was just a bit too intrusive on my free time. Um, but yeah, it, it's sort of good to know that you can do it if you have to. And certainly in terms of breaking the back of that first draft, it was brilliant to just um, yeah have the words out. I did find when I was editing, though, when I came back to edit that first book, the bits that I'd written in NaNoWriMo had an awful lot of pointless words in them. <laughs> there was an awful lot. And she sat down in the chair and the chair that was sitting underneath her and, uh, you know, she lowered herself into the chair that she sat on, um, where I just was obviously trying to just get to that word count rather than say something succinctly. Is that something that you watch out for now to try and get things tighter first time round? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the um, the genre that I'm writing in really demands um, concision. You have to be getting on with things, and you have to have every word needs to needs to count. Um, it's not a you know spy thrillers can't really have long periods where you um you philosophize on things or long periods of beautiful description you've got everything has to serve a purpose and be moving the plot forward um and i write um, a lot of flash fiction i really enjoy writing flash fiction and that's a great discipline to really focus on um what is essential and which words you need and what you can do away with Flash fiction, I saw that you were involved in this. It's a term that I've never actually heard before. And I've been, I guess, dipping my toes into the writing world for a few years now. Just run us through exactly what flash fiction is. Is it different to short stories? What is it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a it's a it's a funny name, um, and it is a very um, sort of distinct genre of its own. Almost, it is generally defined. It's sometimes called microfiction, and it's generally short stories of five hundred words or less. Sometimes three hundred words are the limit. Sometimes a hundred words, uh, which is really a micro story. Um, and the idea 
is that you, you, you really tell a story with those words. So it's not just an image or a moment or a quick illustration, but it's, it's a story with a beginning and middle and end and a, you know, and a point and a point of reversal. And, um, and it's an amazing art form. I had never heard of it either until I sort of started, um, dipping my toe into into it and it's it's a, it's big on twitter that's where i really came across it and some of the people who do it well are it's extraordinary how much story and character and world they're able to create in just a few hundred words um i find it a really really nice relief from writing a novel which is of course such a huge um, undertaking that takes months and you can't you can't even reread your own work in in you know just a few hours it's just such a big thing whereas a piece of flash fiction you can bash it out in a few minutes you can revise it in a few minutes or weeks or months you know depending on your style um but it's a really kind of concentrated little bite of creativity as opposed to a a large meal of a novel how did that set you up for then moving to write full novels of 80, 90,000 words, which has got to be uh, the gestation period on what you're telling has to be a lot longer. Uh, as you've said, I know you're still writing spy thrillers, so that is quite tight, but it's different from the pacing and the plotting of something that's only 500 words with a beginning, a middle, an end. How how did you translate one skill to the other? I think I mean, so the spy novels actually came first and the flash fiction has been an escape from the torturous plots of doing spy writing. <laughs> so they're, they're, I've always done both at the same time. Um, and it's because they're so different that I enjoy doing both. Um, you know, one is a welcome relief from the other. Well, then I guess the question is, Writing flash fiction, if you've got five books that you want to write in, in the spy series, writing flash fiction is surely taking time away from moments you could be spending writing a novel. So wh- why do you do it? Uh, that is a very good question. Um, I think it's just all about, I think flash fiction for me is a way of um, not quite parking ideas, but you know when an, an idea pops into my head or an image or a vision or um, a story idea or just, you know, something that just jumps in and demands to be thought about. Flash fiction is a great way of giving it, um, giving it life in a way that isn't sort of all consuming. I don't have to suddenly start writing another novel um, when I'm midway through the one that I'm currently working on. It's something that I can do in, in half an hour, in an hour, and then it's there and it's out. Um, so it's a great way of sort of, you know, acknowledging, recognizing, using the different inspirations and um, ideas that that come in the course of life, without distracting too much from the the major working process, which is the five volume spy novel series. Um, you knew that you wanted to write five volumes. Uh, at what point did you get a publishing contract for that? For at least one or two, or whatever it is. Um, oh, quite, quite, quite late in the process. I had a complete draft of book three before I signed with Burning Chair. Um, so there were definite moments when I thought, you know, this is just the, the ultimate um, vanity project or, you know, just the ultimate act of insanity to be <laughs> busying away with this whole, whole series while not yet knowing if anyone will ever read it. Um, but like I say, I kind of just didn't really have the choice. It just demanded to be written. Um, and 
uh, the character demanded that I told her story. And so I got on with it and um, obviously hoped that it would one day be read. And it is um, exceptionally sweet to be able to finally share it with the world after this sort of long period of wondering what would ever happen to it. Well, that's what I'm amazed by because you're busy with... Uh, work with many jobs with with uh, a family with everything that's going on down there and then you're you, you know taking time out of all of that to write these books not knowing if you'll end up getting paid for them uh, a few years ago I mean, how, how um i i guess i guess no but it, did you ever feel guilty for that because i know that when i'm i'm a freelancer and when i'm meant to be doing work that i'm getting paid for but i'm taking time out to do something else i know that i I feel a little bit iffy about that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And also, if you're, um, you know, I was a, the, the um, sort of stay-at-home parent, if you like, for small children. So in order to be able to uh, buy myself this time, I quite literally had to buy myself this time. I'd have to pay a babysitter to take the children while I did this. And that made me feel very guilty and very kind of, you know, what what is this self-indulgence? Um, but I think, um, well, I think two things. One is I don't think anyone writes or should write for the promise of being well paid. I, mean, I think it's a, it is a truth that uh, most writers know that the chances of really earning a decent living income on writing alone um, is, is very, very low these days. Um, so it has to be something that you enjoy enough just from the process of doing it and the process of being able to share it with the world. Um, and then um, it was also for me a kind of a piece of self-care. Um, so when I was, especially when the children were very little, when you have really young children and babies, your your world is completely consumed by their needs and what, you know, what you need to do to, to look after them. And so having somewhere that I could escape to in my mind and somewhere that something that was just mine, that wasn't anything to do with the children that I could, um, I could do on my own. And I could also think about and have as a, a place to escape to when I was otherwise perhaps quite physically uh, restricted um, was, was a real help to me and something that I think I would have really, really struggled to be without. When things are getting tough in your very tight time of writing, when the words are struggling to come out, uh, is there anything that you've learned that just helps it a little bit? Maybe a piece of music, a cup of coffee at a certain time? What do you do, Lucy? Um, I think going for a walk is um, one of the most um, brilliant things you can do in life. Uh, any problem that you have, um, I think a, a walk can unlock things um, that you didn't know where to look for. Um, I find playing the piano, I'm not a very good pianist at all. Um, and I certainly would never play for if anyone else was listening, but I love playing for myself and, um, just the, there's something about the different part of your brain that you use when you're playing the piano compared to writing that I find is like pressing a reset button. If I'm stuck with the writing and I leave my desk, I sit down at the piano and I play something short and quick. I'm able to go back to the desk in a completely different frame of mind from where I left it. And that, yeah, that's a really, a really valuable trick to be able to feel productive while also feeling a bit stuck. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're back with more from Lucy in just a sec. Very quickly, I'm just popping up uh, to say if you're enjoying the show, as always, you could really help us out by becoming a backer at our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. And I cannot thank you enough. I know times are tight at the moment. I cannot thank everyone that's supporting us. We, uh, if that's you, if you've done it recently, I just really appreciate uh, the time and the effort and the, well, the money that you've given to, to just help us carry on, to help us keep bringing you these chats as often as we can. For that, you get our eternal thanks, our eternal uh, gratefulness, of course. There is even merch. There's some bonus stuff. There's even a way for your book to sponsor this show. So if you've published recently, if it's not got the fanfare that it's deserved, because I know that so often happens in publishing, you strive for so long to get your words down, and then it doesn't always go quite as you as you wish. Now, that's fine because it's different for everyone, but you can let me plug away for you by becoming a backer at our Patreon page. It doesn't cost a lot. A few dollars a month really helps us carry on, and anything is really worthwhile at the moment. So thank you, and you can get involved. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then with Lucy Hooft talking about her new novel. It's the first of five in a new series starring the young spy Sarah Black. It's called The King's Pawn. You can hear how much she thought about spy thrillers as a genre before she started writing. Also why she started to structure novels like each one is a separate Netflix series. That's a really interesting way of doing it. Find out more about that. And we jump back in talking about the novel. Where did that first idea come from? 
Where's that? So, uh, yeah, well, I was, when my first child was born, my husband used to set me um, writing exercises as a way of sort of fending off baby brain um, and giving me something to do while I was sat for many long hours nursing a very slow baby. Um, and I, uh, he, they were all sort of ridiculous and outlandish prompts, like um, an Afghan warlord is eating chicken feet in a cafe, and I'd have to write 500 words on it. And it was just a really nice exercise, and it was fun, and it would give us the two of us something to laugh about in amongst the intense periods of small, um, small babies entering your life. Um, and then one day, one of his prompts was about um, this girl who was a spy and her father worked in the cabinet office and um, the 500 word prompt turned into a set of five novels. Um, yeah, Sarah just jumped off the page and demanded that her story be written. And, and that's what I've been busy with ever since. Um, I Part of the reason why I enjoy doing it so much and I think why it kind of struck such a chord was that I had had this career in the Foreign Office for a bit and then the um, Department for International Development and then working with Her Majesty Queen Rania in Jordan. Um, and I had been to all these extraordinary places and met all of these extraordinary people. And I really wanted a way to capture some of the best bits. But I didn't want to write a memoir um, that seemed uh, boring and a bit pretentious, especially as a about 30 year old or whatever I was at the time. Um, so to have, um, to be able to have a, a framework into which, you know, a fictional framework into which I could borrow the best bits of real life, um, just worked and, uh, and was great fun. And so that is where the series have come from. Um, I wasn't a spy, but an awful lot of people thought that I must be because I had this strange life of, um, you know, I was thrown off into the former Soviet Union and then Beijing and then wartime Sierra Leone. And so the books are a sort of what if um, that had been true, what might it have looked like? Well, I'll say the classic, which is that if you were a spy, you, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't broadcast you're a spy, would you? So we'll never know. That's right. <laughs> There we go. Um, right, so you've got this, you know, it starts off as this um, little exercise to fend off baby brain, but then you need to make a plot out of it, not just a plot, but you know that you want to entwine so many things that have happened in your life. So what happens next when, when you've worked, when you've done those 500 words, when you've got an idea for who the character is? How did you know what the first plot in this series would be? Where did you start? Um, so I, yeah, I definitely can't, I would not recommend that anyone ever does it the way I did it, which was just to sit down and write about this character, um, doing some things that I did and meeting some people that I met and having a great time in Georgia. That was absolutely not the way to go about writing a spy novel. Um, and so it took me a long time to whip that into shape and to give it a plot. Um, and, and to make Sarah, not me, it was, you know, I think I probably did start off with thinking of her too much as me as a spy. Um, and that I found really difficult to write well, because I felt quite self-conscious to delve into that person's brain. If it was me, I didn't want to put my warts and all flaws onto the page. Um, so I, in the, what I ended up with in my early drafts was a pretty dull, characterless, featureless protagonist and all sorts of interesting side characters. Um, so I had to really make her not me. And then I was able to, to make her her and, and tell her story properly and bring her to life in that way. 
Um, and then the plot, as it was, is actually inspired by a real life event. Um, so when I when I was living in Georgia, there was an extraordinary. Um, uh, I can't tell, say too much about it because it's a bit of a spoiler. But there was an extraordinary uh, attempt that, if it had come to pass, would have absolutely changed the course of history as we know it. Um, but uh, it didn't it was thwarted and the reasons given for why it didn't happen are really quite bizarre and ridiculous uh so i found that very strange and then i also found very strange that no one's ever heard of it it's just i mean obviously georgia and the south caucasus are not a part of the world that people know very much about doesn't hit the news that often but nonetheless you know this this had the potential to be an extraordinary um change of history and yet it's not a story that people know so that was the event that inspired the plot and from there um yeah i just sort of weaved in uh what was sarah's role in uh making sure that this that history went the way it did rather than the way it could have done talking about sarah and how she's like you but you didn't want to make her like you so you kind of had this very uh bland character at the start that, surely that must be so tough to have this blank canvas that's living quite a few, a few of the things that you've done, but isn't you. How did you make her separate in the end? Um, yeah, I think it just took a lot of really thinking hard about who she was, what were her main defining characteristics, what were her kind of foundational traumas, what were her big motivations. Um, I did a really brilliant course with a, um, a writer and psychologist called Stephanie Carty, um, where she makes you really delve into the psychology of character. And that was an incredibly useful thing because I think I hadn't thought that deeply about who she is and why she is who she is and what's happened to her in the past to make her respond the way that she does. Um, and Stephanie is just brilliant at putting her finger on, um, you know, what you're trying to say and then saying it better. So she really helped me get to grips with who Sarah was. And um, and then, you know, once you have that deep understanding, you then know exactly how someone will respond to um, different challenges or events. And you also know then how to build in the emotional depth, because what are the things that that will be most difficult for Sarah? Those are the exact things you need to throw at her in the novel. We spoke earlier about the style of the spy thriller, and I, and I wonder how much you thought about that when you first started writing. So when you were just getting your very first draft down and after the exercise that your husband gave you, um, were you thinking much about how you write a, a spy thriller, like the length of sentences, how complex the language needs to be? Uh, not really, and certainly not as much as I should have done, I think. Um, I did read a lot of the Ian Fleming Bond novels at that time, and I thought, all right, I can do that. Um, and But I hadn't really read that much other spy fiction. I hadn't read around the genre at all, really. Um, and that was, I think, an error. And I, would, again, would not recommend that people um, jump into a genre that they don't know much about um but through the process of the editing and the reworking and the redrafting i have of course looked a lot more at the genre and um worked out a lot more you know what are the expectations and what are the things that you just that are expected what are the things that you just can't really get away with what um uh you know what are the important things that people want to see in spy fiction 
Um, I think, I suppose because I come at it in this funny way, I've always thought of the novels as spy novels for people who don't like spy novels. Um, And the early reviews coming in uh, back that up. Uh, People, a lot of people have started their reviews saying, I wouldn't really normally read a book like this, but oh, what fun. And it was great. Um, And that was exactly, I suppose, what I wanted to achieve. Um, You know, I wasn't a big reader of spy novels, but I suddenly wanted to write one. And so I was hoping that it would appeal to people who weren't necessarily big readers of spy novels, but actually found they could be, you know, lots and lots to enjoy and admire in them. Um, Having said that, I still want to be true enough to the genre that I, I also hope people who do like spy novels will enjoy it too and won't just find it too, too different. We we often speak to authors on the show who uh, talk sometimes about the perils of overplotting. <clears throat> that um, you you'll think you're going down one road, and then your characters snatch you down a side street and take you off course. Um, and I imagine that's tough in one novel, but you've kind of pla- you had planned out five to a degree when you when you started. Um, how, how were you doing that? How were you knowing what Sarah would would be doing generally in in five book t- books time? Um, so there's quite um, the amount of planning I've done for the five book series is very light. Um, so what I know about each of the books in the series is where they're going to be set. Um, each one is set in a different geographic location. Um, I know where what is their place within the five book arc. So, you know, the first one, she's very innocent beginner. Second one, she's sort of got plucky. Uh, confidence of a lucky start behind her and a bit headstrong, but also still a bit inexperienced and doesn't know what she's doing. Um, uh, third one, she's uh, you know suddenly realizes the way bigger game that is being played um, that she could be part of. So that kind of you know I've got a headline for each one, but in terms of the plot and what happens, um, it's very much open to be set. Um, and I think yeah, if if all five of them were um, were really, really plotted out, I think I would find that very restrictive. Um, so each book has a, um, uh, and I, you know, a, a, a f- the, the main character journey that she needs to take is clear. Um, and then, yeah, I work that out as I, as I get to each book in turn. So how do you work out when you get to each book in turn? So say you're sat there writing your third book, for instance, when you start typing, knowing now who Sarah is because you've worked, you've been with her for two other novels. <clears throat> so you know what she's like, you know what she's done before. Um, when, when you sit there writing it, do you have a, is it a scene by scene guide? Is it more a beginning, middle and end? Uh, how, how much do you leave it up to her and her adventure? Um, so no, I am quite prescriptive these days um, before I start writing. Uh, so I will start off with a massive, big kind of A2 size book and I will scribble out, okay, what is her journey here? What does she want? What's stopping her from getting it? Um, and then I'll do the same for the other major characters. So of course, Sarah is my protagonist I've had throughout, but there's, uh, there's a number of other characters who reappear throughout the books, um, which is a great advantage because I know them really well and I know them inside out. But the, um, the challenge is that you have to make sure that each book, something new happens to them, that they have some new journey of discovery. Um, so I think for each of them, you know, what are the same sort of questions? What do they want? What's stopping them from getting it? Um, what are them? And then also the same for the main main baddie or, um, you know, antagonist or whoever it is that's going to be Sarah's arch nemesis. Um, is there one? Is there two? Is there a twist? 
Um, and then I will sort of sketch out those um, threads, if you like, the journeys for each of those characters. And then I'll see, well, where do they interlink? Um, how, you know, how do you make what one person wants be the opposite of what another person wants? And then you've got plot. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the sort of first step. And then, uh, my, my biggest collaborator in all these books and especially on plot is my husband. Um, he is really, really brilliant at the big picture stuff. Um, so I will go away and I'll have my ideas and I'll have my kind of general framework. And then he and I will thrash out together. Um, well, how's that going to work and who are these different people and what is the plot and what are the real life hooks that we want to base this on? And the actual planning of the plot is a really, really collaborative process. Um, and then once I've got that idea, it goes into a sort of Excel spreadsheet of this needs to happen, that needs to happen, the other needs to happen. Um, in book three, or before I started working on book three, I spent a bit of time um, working with a very prominent British director and a amazing Polish actress writing a um, Netflix series or a, a Netflix pilot and a proposed series, which never got made in the end. But it was in my first time doing screenwriting. And that was a really, really good way of looking at storytelling because um, – a Netflix series, say nine episodes, it has to be one continuous story like a novel, but each episode also needs to stand on its own and have its little cliffhanger and, um, you know, work as a single piece. So my book three, I actually structured in the same way. I had sort of nine episodes, if you like, and each of those nine episodes needs to end on a, on a cliffhanger. Um, and then it, as I sort of worked that out, each episode would be maybe three or four chapters in the book. Um, but to make sure that it has that, that overarching structure, the same, the same as a, as a TV series, I found just a really useful way of making sure that the pace and the tension and the, um, the different interweaving storylines, uh, had the right balance, um, before I started writing. And that is it for this week's writer's routine with Lucy Hoof. Thank you so much to Lucy for coming on the show. Their novel is The King's Pawn. It's out now. It's the first in a brilliant five-book new spy thriller series starring Sarah Black. Uh, next week, we'll be back with another fantastic author running us through their working day. In the meantime, you can support us out, help with the show, become a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can get in touch, writersroutine.com, and drop us a follow on Twitter. We are at writerspod there. And I will see you next week. Until then. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.